Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemming Brainiac List podcast. Talking about War and Peace, Book 3, Chapter 16. Emperor Alexander... Am I reading the right thing here? Let me just double check that I'm reading the right chapter. Chapter 16. Ah, yes, I was reading the wrong one. What do you think of Prince... Andre's actions during this chapter? Do you think he behaved rationally? What did you make of Prince Andre's reaction to being injured? How do you think these thoughts line up with those of his moments of self-reflection at the end of chapter 12? Warren Kovofi says, I think Andre had been dead set on distinguishing himself, distinguishing himself within this battle, no matter how it went, and it went off the rails quickly. With everything falling into chaos... And with the Russians on the retreat, Andre doesn't seem like he can accept how disastrous it's going and attempts to lead a futile charge. Rather than a Napoleonic moment that rallies the struggling Russians around him, Andre gets brought back to reality by literally getting knocked on his ass. I laughed out loud at this part. Forward, lads, he cried in a childishly shrill voice. I found Andre's stumbling attempt to obtain glory pretty brutal by Tolstoy. One thing that really stuck out to me is he's been described as being kind of slight, you know, not as not as strong as most of the soldiers. He's a small guy. Uh, but I, I never imagined him that way. But then in this chapter with him struggling to hold the flag up um, and then someone else takes it off him and, and they can hold it up just fine, although that person gets killed immediately, so he picks it back up. But every time he picks it up, he's like dragging it along the ground rather than, you know, lifting it up into the air because it's too heavy for him. Uh, Warren Kovoff, he says, in a way, I'm thinking that Andre got slapped back into reality with that blow. He was he has been looking to find glory in something as awful as war, but looking to the sky, which sounds dismal and unappealing, Andre seems to find beauty and pleasure in the simpler things around him. Ikar 100 said, I found this chapter way more fun than the last few. I guess when anyone could die at any moment, I get more engrossed in the book. Andre's actions in this chapter were not rational in the slightest, but consistent with what was seen of him thus far. Well, he did lead the charge, you know, like um, those men were running around like crazy, like maniacs with no order, no focus. And he did what a good leader would do, and he rallied them and got them to charge, which is what needed to happen. Now, he did risk, very big risk of getting killed doing that. Um, But I guess that was what he wanted to risk for the chance of glory that's what makes it glorious when he achieves it is that he did it in the face of death and he rallied the troops i think um there is some rationality in it it's just reckless and crazy but i think it was a good thing to do have done i don't think i would have done it (laughs) but um i would have just been one of the guys running around screaming i think um, in fact, his reaction to being injured was kind of surprising to me, says Ika 100. I expected him to keep his mad desire for glory even while down, yet he seemed to have similar thoughts to Rostov. Slightly different, and I would say more dignified, although that just might be my sympathy for him speaking, but quite similar. I want to see how Andre reacts after this before I decide how weird it is for him to focus on the sky while down. I hope he doesn't die right now. I've grown quite fond of him. Uh, that guy you know, 
says, long-time listener, first-time caller, welcome to the discussion, welcome to the podcast. So I'm a little confused. I thought the chapters switched back and forth between war and peace chapters. Chapter 1 was peace, chapter 2 was war, 3 started adding peace but immediately shifted to war. Is the book not divided into war and peace chapters like I previously thought, or will it continue to shift in the middle of chapters like chapter 3? Um... I think for the most part, the chapters, you know, we go back in kind of clumps of chapters, a few chapters of peace, a few chapters of war, um, back and forth, and those clumps might be bigger or smaller, just depends on the point of the book. But, um, yeah, I don't know if there's many instances where it changes from one to the other mid-chapter, but, yeah, I mean, at least there's going to be a few, I think. Um, but yeah, it's definitely not divided cleanly, just like some chapters of peace, some of war. It's, it's, it gets more and more sort of muddled together. Twisted Every Way says, uh-oh, has our fair Andre met his end? That injury did not sound good. If so, at least he went out the way he probably would have wanted, crazily leading the charge in battle. Those injuries to Kutuzov don't sound great either. Ripster 66 says, Prince Andre followed through on his commitment to behave bravely. He was determined to save the day, but the odds were really overwhelming, and he may have been brave, but it also seemed foolhardy to me. Um, let's keep reading, shall we? I'm very tired, and I want to keep reading and move on with my life. Um, so what did we just read? Chapter 16, so we must be up to 17 going to read the Maud one again. I really want to get a chapter finished, but I keep sitting down to do it and I'll do maybe one page and then, I don't know, it's just a busy time at the moment, I guess. Um, I'm a bit back and forth. So, um, yeah, sorry, I keep reading the Maud chapters. I have this weird feeling, and this is probably really egotistical, but like, I feel like the, when I read bo- the Maud ones, it's a the podcast is more boring (laughs) like when I read my own version it's more entertaining and I guess that's a good way to feel about your own work sure Um, but anyway I hope I'm well I don't know I don't know if I hope I'm wrong or if I hope I'm right I guess I hope I'm right I hope my my version is more entertaining at least to listen to Um, anyway let's read Old Maud chapter 17 on our right flank commanded by Bagration at 9 o'clock the battle had not yet begun. Not wishing to agree to Dolgorokov's demand to commence the action, and wishing to avert responsibility from himself, Prince Bagration proposed to Dolgorokov to send to inquire of the commander-in-chief. Bagration knew that as the distance between the two flanks was more than six miles, even if the messenger were not killed, which he very likely would be, and found the commander-in-chief, which would be very difficult, he would still not be able to get back before evening. Bagration cast his large expressionless sleepy eyes round his suite, and the boyish face of Rostov, breathless with excitement and hope, was the first to catch his eye. He sent him. And if I should meet his majesty before I meet the commander-in-chief, your excellency, said Rostov with his hand to his cap, you can give the message to his majesty, said Dolgorokov, hurriedly interrupting Bagration. On being relieved from picket duty, Rostov had managed to get a few hours sleep before morning and felt cheerful, bold and resolute with elasticity of movement, 
faith in his good fortune, and generally in that state of mind which makes everything seem possible, pleasant, and easy. Oh, you know what? I think this is an awesome chapter. I just remembered where this is going. I think this is an awesome chapter. Uh, all his wishes were being fulfilled that morning. There was to be a general engagement in which he was taking part. More than that, he was orderly to be the bravest general, and still more, he was going with a message to Kutuzov, perhaps even to the sovereign himself. The morning was bright, he had a good horse under him, and his heart was full of joy and happiness. On receiving the order, he gave his horse the rein and galloped along the line. At first he rode along the line of Bagration troops, which had not yet advanced into action, but was standing motionless. Then he came to the region occupied by Uvarov's cavalry, and here he noticed a stir and signs of preparation for battle. Having passed Uvarov's cavalry, he clearly heard the sound of cannon and musketry ahead of him. The firing grew louder and louder. In the fresh morning air were now heard not two or three musket shots at regular intervals as before, followed by one or two cannon shots, but a roll of volleys of musketry from the slopes of the hill before Pratzen, interrupted by such frequent reports of cannon that sometimes several of them were not separated from one another, but merged into a general roar. He could see puffs of musketry smoke that seemed to chase one another down the hillsides, and clouds of cannon smoke rolling, spreading, and mingling with one another. He could also, by the gleam of bayonets, visible through the smoke, make out moving masses of infantry and narrow lines of artillery with green caissons. Rostov stopped his horse for a moment on a hillock to see what was going on, but strained his attention as he could. He could not understand or make out anything of what was happening. There in the smoke, men of some sort were moving about. In front and behind moved lines of troops, but why, whether or who they were, it was impossible to make out. These sights and sounds had no depressing or intimidating effect on him. On the contrary, they stimulated his energy and determination. Go on, go on, give it to them, he mentally exclaimed at these sounds, and again proceeded to gallop along the line, penetrating farther and farther into the region where the army was already in action. How will it be there? I don't know, but all will be well, thought Rostov. After passing some Austrian troops, he noticed that the next part of the line, the guards, was already in action. So much the better, I shall see it close, he thought. He was riding almost along the front line. A handful of men came galloping towards him. They were our Hulans, who with disordered ranks were returning from an attack. Rostov got out of their way and voluntarily noticed that one of them was bleeding and galloped on. That is no business of mine, he thought. He had not ridden many hundred yards after that before he saw to his left across the whole width of the field an enormous mass of cavalry in brilliant white uniforms mounted on black horses trotting straight towards him and across his path. Rostov put his horse to full gallop to get out of the way of these men, and he would have got clear had they continued at the same speed, but they kept increasing their pace so that some of the horses were already galloping. Rostov heard the thud of their hoofs and the jingle of their weapons, and saw their horses, their figures, and even their faces more and more distinctly. They were our horse guards advancing to attack the French cavalry that were coming to meet them. The horse guards were galloping, but still holding in their horses. Rostov could already see their faces and heard the command charge, shouted by an officer who was urging his thoroughbred to full speed. Rostov, fearing to be crushed or swept into the attack on the French, galloped along the front as hard as his horse could go, but still was not in time to avoid them. 
The last of the horse guards, a huge pockmarked fellow, frowned angrily on seeing Rostov before him, with whom he would inevitably collide. This guardsman would certainly have bowled Rostov and his Bedouin over. Rostov felt himself quite tiny and weak compared to these gigantic men on horses. Had it not occurred to Rostov to flourish his whip before the eyes of the guardsman's horse, the heavy black horse, sixteen hands high, shied, throwing back its ears, but the pockmark guardsman drove his huge spurs in violently, and the horse, flourishing its tail and extending its neck, galloped on yet faster. Hardly had the horse guards passed Rostov before he heard them shout hurrah, and looking back, saw that their foremost ranks were mixed up with some foreign cavalry and red epaulets, probably French. He could see nothing more, for immediately afterwards a cannon began firing from somewhere and smoke enveloped everything. At that moment, as the horse guards, having passed him, disappeared in the smoke, Rostov hesitated whether to gallop after them or to go where he was sent. This was the brilliant charge of the horse guards that amazed the French themselves. Rostov was horrified to hear later that, of all the mass of huge and handsome men, of all those brilliant rich youths, officers and cadets, who had just galloped past him on their thousand ruble horses, only eighteen were left after the charge. Why should I envy them? My chance is not lost, and maybe I shall see the emperor immediately, thought Rostov and galloped on. When he came level with the foot guards, he noticed that about them and around them cannonballs were flying, of which he was aware not so much because he heard their sound as because he saw uneasiness on the soldiers' faces and unnatural warlike solemnity on those of the officers. Passing behind one of the lines of the regiment of foot guards, he heard a voice calling him by name, Rostov. What, he answered, not recognising Boris. I say, we've been in the front line, our regiment attacked, said Boris, with a happy smile on the face. Face, uh, With the happy smile seen on the faces of young men who have been under fire for the first time. Rostov stopped. Have you, he said. Well, how did it go? We drove them back, said Boris, with animation, growing talkative. Can you imagine it? And he began describing how the guards, having taken up their position and seeing troops before them, thought they were Austrians, and all at once discovered from the cannonballs discharged by the troops that they were themselves in the front line and had unexpectedly to go into action. Rostov, without hearing Boris to the end, spurred his horse. Where are you off to? asked Boris. With a message to his majesty. There he is, said Boris, thinking Rostov had said his highness, and pointing to the Grand Duke, who, with his high shoulders and frowning brows, stood a hundred paces away from them in his helmet and horse guard's jacket, shouting something to a pale, white, uniformed Austrian officer. But that's the Grand Duke. I want the commander-in-chief or the emperor, said Rostov, and was about to spur his horse. Count, Count, shouted Berg, who ran up from the other side as eager as Boris. Count, I am wounded in my right hand and he showed his bleeding hand with a handkerchief tied around it, and I remained at the front. I held my sword in my left hand. Count all our family, the von Bergs, have been knights. He said something more, but Rostov did not wait to hear it and rode away. Having passed the guards and traversed an empty space, Rostov, to avoid again getting in front of the first line, as he had done when the horse guards charged, followed the line of reserves, going far around the place where the hottest musket fire and cannonade were heard, Suddenly he heard musket fire quite close in front of him and behind our troops, where he could never have expected the enemy to be. What can it be, he thought, the enemy is in the rear of our army, impossible. And suddenly he was seized by a panic of fear for himself and for the issue of the whole battle. 
But be that what it may, he reflected, there is no riding round it now. I must look for the commander-in-chief here, and if all is lost, it is for me to perish with the rest. The foreboding of evil that had suddenly come over Rostov was more and more confirmed the farther he rode into the region behind the village of Pratsen, which was full of troops of all kinds. What does it mean? What is it? Whom are they firing at? Who is firing? Rostov kept asking as he came up to Russian and Austrian soldiers running in confused crowds across his path. The devil knows. They've killed everybody. It's all up now, he was told in Russian, German and Czech by the crowd of fugitives who understood what was happening as little as he did. Kill the Germans, shouted one. May the devil take them, the traitors. Zamhenken Dizversen, muttered a German. Hang these Russians. Several wounded men passed along the road, and words of abuse, screams and groans mingled in the general hubbub. Then the firing died down. Rostov learned later that Russian and Austrian soldiers had been firing at one another. My God, what does it all mean, he thought he. And here, where at any moment the emperor may see them, but no, these must be in only a handful of scoundrels. It will be over soon. It can't be that bad. It can't be. Only to get past them quicker, quicker. The idea of defeat and of flight could not enter Rostov's head, though he saw French cannon and French troops on the Prats and Heights just where he had been ordered to look for the commander-in-chief. He could not, did not wish to believe that. Alrighty, there we go. Another chapter down. Rostov is on a little speed run, trying to get a message delivered. He's just crossing through the battlefield on his horse. Pretty cool. Alright, have your say about it over on the subreddit. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.